Hello, and welcome to Faith Facts with Father Howard. I'm Lindsay, here with Father Howard, and on today's episode, we are talking about the Pentateuch. So let's get started. Hey, Lindsay, once again, good to be with you and an opportunity to just uh, take some time to talk about a few things, and particularly the Pentateuch. when we think about the Pentateuch, oftentimes we think, well, that's one of those Jewish things. And, and we don't think about the value and, and, and the consequences and the effects that it have on just on entire Christianity and, 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 and what our tradition is. But before we get to that point, is that I have a, um, a, fair, uh, a favorite author. His name is Terry Goodkind. And he has written uh, several uh, uh, fant- uh, fantasy books. They're just, you know, wizards and, you know, dragons and all of that. It's, it's good reading when you don't want to read anything heavy. But I, I kind of latched on to him. I've read probably 20 plus books now that he has written several different series. But whenever I look for a new series because I'm running out of his books, is that uh, what I do is, is, and most people I would say, is that when you want a particular kind of literature, you pick up a book, you look at you know, the, the cover jacket to see how, how things work, you, look, you kind of flip through the first few pages. What's the style of writing? Because uh, Terry Goodkind has a particular style of writing that I really enjoy. But when you do that, when you look at the index, when you look at the intro, when you look at these kinds of, of pieces that are part of, of the book, it gives you an idea of, of style. It gives you an idea of how the person approaches something. It gives you an idea of, of how they want to address some of the issues that, that they may be addressing in their uh, piece of literature. In many ways, uh, the Pentateuch is that for us, for the Jewish and, and the Christian Bibles, is that it is an introduction to us. It, it, it introduces a style, a way of approach. It helps us to, to grow in an understanding of, of, you might say, the journey that, that we are going to be on when not only we read the Pentateuch, but, but as Christians, we would say we read the rest of the Bible, is that the Pentateuch has a powerful, continues to have a powerful, powerful effect on, on how we approach the Bible, we understand the Bible, we read the Bible, uh, what we can learn from the Bible, is that the Pentateuch is really that that body of literature that really uh, introduces us to some of those those pieces. The Pentateuch, it's a Greek term, which really, the definition in the Greek is that it's uh, a five-part writing. Uh, By definition, it's a five-part writing in the sense that it was always considered, even from the very beginning, a singular book. We, the Pentateuch by its very nature, you know, it consists of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, oftentimes, our approach is that these are five separate books written by five separate authors, when really the Pentateuch, by its nature, is really a singular entity with kind of five sections as opposed to five separate books. And so, to really understand, you might say, the Pentateuch, you almost you you have to almost read it from beginning to end, Oof. you know, rather than just saying, well, I want to read Genesis, or I want to read this, because 
how it's put together. It is not by accident, you know, and it's just not by the fact that Genesis, you know, speaks of the first things. And I had mentioned that a little bit when we were talking about the Bible in, gen in general, is that it has something, it also has a lot to do that the meaning of these different books gain their meaning and their understanding by how they are juxtaposed to one another, how they are connected to one another, how they are lined up, and how they keep referring back and forth, even though we're not necessarily aware of it. So it's a singular entity that really more has, that has more what we would say like five separate parts, as opposed to being simply five separate books. So that, that's an important piece. And it's, it's that introduction that, that, that helps us to understand the whole basics of, of the Jewish faith. Jewish tradition, we'll call it the Torah. Uh, which loosely translated, translated in a sense, um, you know, we have considered to mean law when actually a more accurate meaning of, of Torah would be teaching uh, rather than simply law. It's um, similar to, you know, when we talk about the Ten Commandments. In English, we say Ten Commandments, which has a connotation of law that thou shalt not do this. As opposed to, you know, when it comes to the Decalogue, which refer, you know, technical term for it, is that it's really the Ten Statements. And these are Ten Statements that more than laws would be a better approach would be to say, you know, if you want to be part of our community, this is how we live. This is, this is how we exist with each other. This is how we form community. We only have one God, you know, and we have no other gods, no idols before that. Only one God. We, we honor our mom and dads. Uh, we honor and respect those people who are older than we. We don't kill each other, you know. We take care of each other. We don't lie. We don't cheat. We don't steal. We we respect the relationships that people have. That's a whole different approach than when you say Ten Commandments as opposed to the Ten Statements that are more descriptive of, of, of what it means to be in relationship, to be in a community, to be in relationship to one another. In a way, to look at the Torah uh, the five books of the Pentateuch, to look at that as more of a teaching. This is how we do it. Um, not so much as laws, you better do this or else. And see, that was one of the things that, you know, later on when Jesus comes into the picture, is that that is one of the things that he battled against. You, you know, it had become, even for many of the Jewish people, it had become a matter of hundreds of laws, regulations that had to be followed rather than Jesus saying, look, I'm not here to, to destroy anything. I'm here to help you understand what it was supposed to be in the first place. And you folks have forgotten, you know, and it has become more about how do we follow the rules rather than, you know, how do we live together with a sense of peace? And the rules then became ways of, of, of uh, using them as a weapon against people, like those who know the rules win the game, you know, that they use the rules as weapons against because you had a, a, an, an illiteracy rate that, you know, that was considerable. And so most people wouldn't have been able to read or, or know what the rules were. 
uh, probably someone who would have been a rabbi or a teacher or whatever probably had them all memorized, uh, which would not have been uncommon. Even though it seemed to be hundreds of them, they probably all them all memorized because they were much better at doing that than we are today. They didn't. Well, and have, if you read something enough, you just kind of soak it in. You do. So it's it's more of a teaching, and it's the basic teaching you might say, the Torah of the Jewish faith. Uh, it's, it's vital to recognize, you might say, the character of the Pentateuch because, as I mentioned before, it stands as an introduction to the rest of the Bible. The better you grasp that, and this is something that, that I learned over the years also because, you know, like anything, you, you go into these classes and sometimes they, you know, sometimes you go into things like this, more technical things, sometimes not so much because you're trying to learn a lot. But as time has gone on, I have grown in appreciation of what the Pentateuch, you know, has to offer. Otherwise, you know, when you kind of get to Leviticus and you get to Numbers, it's like, stay away from there because they don't have the great stories, you know. Yeah. And so yet, what it has to teach and by, you know, defining things and the laws and such really sheds a lot of light as to why, you know, things happened in Genesis or in Exodus or in Deuteronomy the way they did because this was their understanding of how people work together, how foreigners worked with the folks, how God worked with everybody and you know and how that was to somehow be lived out. So the the five really are in so many ways uh, connected. The Pentateuch is recognized by both, you know, Jewish and Christian faith as the, the as I mentioned the foundation upon which the rest of the scriptures are really built. The better you understand it, the better you understand the rest of the scriptures. It's, it's, you might say it, it really becomes uh, the standard by which all other revelation, you know, and we speak of, of the revelation of the divine through the scriptures. Uh, it's the standard by which all other revel revelation by God is interpreted. That's, that's how important, that's how key it is. Um, we don't know exactly why uh, over hundreds of years, the Jewish folks, you know, organized the books as they did. But what we can say is that it wasn't an accident. And, and good, solid, and scriptural study has really helped us to know that we may not know exactly why, but what we do know, it wasn't an accident. That there was purpose and there was meaning. And, and it's one of, I think in some ways, it's one of those things as we grow, you know, even in scriptural understanding, uh, some of the great scholars that have been out there is that you start to grow in an understanding of, of why and the where's and the, and the how-to's and all of that. But we do know, again, that there is, there is purpose and there is meaning to it. Um, the books are, we know, are, are placed in a specific order. Um, and they're in, how they're interpreted is determined by where they are placed in that order. Um, there's clues as to the why of the li lineup. Those clues are found, you know, as I mentioned, through good his, uh, study of the books and, and study on several levels, particularly the key levels would be the historical level, what really in, what's really historical, the, the literary level of, of how, uh, whether songs or poetry or those kinds of things are, are uh, interspersed and inserted because you have, even in Leviticus and Numbers, as I was mentioning, even in the midst of, of those numbers and those lineages and those priestly type peoples, 
you'll have numbers mentioned and then they'll tell a story. You'll have a couple of names listed and then they'll tell a story. Or they'll have like a memory. It's kind of like somebody uh, digressing, which I have sometimes been known to do. It's like yeah, somebody digressing because they had something clicked and brought back a memory. And so then they tell that to emphasize the point that they want to make. So there's a, there's a number of uh, levels. And then there is the spiritual level of the books. What are they trying to say about God's relationship with us, our relationship with God, how that makes a difference in how we are to relate together? So there's a lot of different pieces when it comes to understanding it and different clues that they pick out that help us to um, make sense as to why uh, things are lined up as they are. The Pentateuch is traditionally believed to have been written by Moses. Wow. When he was wandering? When he was wandering. We basically don't have a clue who wrote it. <laughs> okay. Ghostwriter for Moses. Yes. Yeah. Is that rather than, you know, it's, it's probably it's, his wife. <laughs> it could well have been. You never know. Um, so, but it's traditionally believed that he was the author. But even in the five books, there is no place where an actual author is mentioned. In fact, <clears throat> what you'll have is Moses say like, I am passing on to you what was written down. I am offering to you what was offered to me. We do believe that somehow, because we believe they're inspired books, that we believe that ultimately it is the inspiration of God that authors the books on, on the big plane, the big level. Mm -hmm. But there is no place in the five books where it actually says, you know, I wrote this down or Moses actually wrote this down. And so really when it comes down to, um, uh, when it comes down to looking for authorship is that to try and prove that Moses, you know, was the author is really, you might say, um, uh, an effort in futility. And one of the key things, reasons I should say is that, you know, it's, uh, there are so many things in, in the Pentateuch that speak of, of things, events, circumstances that, that would have taken place long after Moses. Even if we have a sense, you know, of when Moses would have lived, you know, in the early centuries, you're talking, you know, after the year of 2000 BC, you're talking in the, you know, uh, let's say the, you know, the 190s or mid, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. 100s, is that there are so many things that events that they speak of that really uh, didn't take place during that time, took hmm. place much, much later. So there's a lot of things that are mentioned. So, that so how did he get the credit for it? Well, that, and that's, that's the thing, is that, one, because of his, what we can say about Moses, and, and so, uh, and, and this is where modern scholarship comes in, you know, that though it's, it's futile to try to, you know, to prove that uh, Moses authored the Pentateuch, is that it is believed and, and held by modern scholarship that he was the founder of the Israelite faith. He really was the founder and, and, and the, of the Israelite faith as we find it in the Bible today. So, you know, authorship is something different than, than founder. And the other piece to this is, is that 
because so much of this, and, and when we start to look at this, the, so much of this was oral tradition for, you know, again, you're talking, yeah, you're talking a thousand years, close to a thousand years. It was oral tradition because the, the kingdom of, yeah, about a thousand years because the kingdom of David, you know, took place in the early, you know, 1000, okay, or somewhere in there, is that uh, it was during actually the time of Solomon. So you're talking, you know, 50, 60 some years after David, it's the time where things actually began to be written down. And, and I'll, I'll go into that a little bit more because of the, uh, you might say, the uh, people who pulled this material, this, this literature together, is that are dated into the end of, of the Davidic uh, kingdom, I should not the Davidic reign by David, and into the mid-latter part of Solomon because you had a time of stability, a time where the money, all of that was available in order to make sure that this happened. And so it's, it's really when, again, when we talked about, when we talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we talk about ancestors, ancestry rather than specific people. Because when you speak of ancestry, you speak of, in a sense, groups of people that are represented by a particular person or type of person as opposed to saying, well, Abraham actually did this at this date. We simply don't know because there is no recorded history, not even outside of the Bible, that some of those things were actually done. This is family stories, uh, community stories, um, personal memories, all that over hundreds of years are collected you know, by, by specific groups that want to make sure that these things are handed on. So when it comes to Moses, we know there was a person named Moses, so he was a, a human person. We know approximately when he would have lived because of the, the pharaohs that are mentioned and, mm -hmm. and the kingdoms and such. So again, it's, it's a fact outside of, of particular Bible stories. And so, but the, the actual data or facts, that's, that probably was lost, except maybe for the big things the actual exodus of leaving. But even what that was, you know, was that a mass exodus as it is described? Or was it really more of a, uh, a ragtaggled band of people who just had enough and, and basically were given the okay to go and then maybe Pharaoh thought better of it and said, you know, rather than dealing with them, let's just wipe them all out and therefore we, don't, we can kind of start over. And that will teach people, you know, not to mess with us and it'll teach a lesson. So what was actually the Exodus? Similar to the story of, you know, what was uh, the Great Flood? You know, when we talk about Noah's Ark, what was that? You know, was that a world covered with water there is no you know archaeological um, geological evidence that the world was ever covered completely by water so it, it you know it wasn't a flood in that regard maybe it was an area flood that is sometimes theorized and a person several people who happen to be trading you know in in cities considerable distance all of a sudden they come back and, and now they come and they look in their valley, and the valley is a lake as opposed to a village. Now, one of the reasons that that is a theory, for example, just to kind of give you an idea with some of that, 
is that they have looked at a couple of places um, around Mount Ararat, which is, you know, theorized where the ark landed, mm -hmm. is that they have looked at a couple of these major water bodies, and there are no signs of any villages on the sh along the shore. You go 40 feet below the waterline, and there are signs of cities having been, been there, villages, wow. entire villages of people. So something catastrophic probably happened an upland or mountainous sea that we might, and somehow it gave way, flooded the valley, and what was a village now is 40 feet underwater. And so now what was a local flood now becomes representative of a worldwide flood. Well, and I suppose at that time, you know, you, people aren't moving quite as much. Correct. And news isn't traveling as fast. And you don't know if the whole world is flooded. So your world is flooded, which means the whole world is flooded. Or the opposite side, your world is not, but their world is. And so, you know, it, it, you're right. And that's the thing. That's why we have to be cautious as to, you know, uh, and, and I believe why the church in its wisdom says, you know, we don't take it all literally. Now, again, there are some traditions that do. We don't take it all literally because, you know, we, we have this relationship with science that says science can teach us an awful lot. And so it's looking at those things. So when it comes to Moses or it comes to this, this teaching, it's not only about an individual, you know, referred to as Moses. It's about what he represents, who he represents, and how what the Torah in a sense represents and how that is all uh, gathered then under one name, one authorship. And, and Moses happens to be the one. So, and I think, again, there's wisdom in it that's saying rather than trying to prove authorship, because the, those kinds of records were simply not kept, is that we do know that he was considered the, the founder of the Israelite faith. That, that we have it again. Even though it would have started, well, with their stories much longer before that? or Yes, even, even though, is it because, again, what they're looking at is, is that when they were writing these things down, they would take pieces, you know, so, you know, they would look at creation. They would look at, you know, what, and, and because it's a conglomerate of people, now some of these people that eventually would have been part of the Israelite people probably were from the known area, mm -hmm. you know, and that goes into way into Mesopotamia, what we know as Iran, Iraq, Turkey, Syria, and beyond, People, you know, banded together, eventually became an identity of people, uh, probably had tagalongs, you know, because of the great drought in Canaan at the time that eventually ended up together, you know, in groups of people in order to, uh, to have food because the Egyptians had food, is that you would have been picking up stories and history and legends from literally all over the known world. And some of these would have been you know, legends of, you know, legends of the major battles between good and evil. Even when it comes to, for example, something like the Great Flood and the 40, you know, the, the 40 uh, days of, of rain and such, is that what you have when it talks about the rainbow is really, you know, is almost taken verbatim out of a, you know, out of a, a, a legend of the, the, the ultimate fight between good and evil, between, you know, the, the rulers of the heavens and the rulers of the underworld. 
and it's it's hmm. the story is almost taken verbatim out of out of some other world, uh, other other cultural stories. These are not necessarily original stories, just with these people. Some of it would have been, some of it would have been borrowed from a long, long time ago. So he kind of pulled it all together. Would have been one of those key people that would have, yes, pulled it together. As the people coalesced, as the people grew in a sense of identity, and that's part of what took place, you know, when you're talking about wandering in the desert, <laughs> you know, is that as this people basically coalesced into a people and mm -hmm. identity, at least in the beginning, 12 tribes, but how long it took, it took hundreds and hundreds of years from this band that left Egypt in order to become this mighty kingdom that was united under David. You know, you're, you're talking well over a thousand plus years. So it, it happens, they would have taken all of these stories over time. Moses was a key figure, as was David. And so legends, when you, again, when you think of Moses, there are legends of all sorts of famous people, legendary people, that would have been found in a basket, you know, the hair wasn't supposed to be cut, whatever it might be. You know, these are, these are archetypal things that, that people would have drawn on, you know, like, like we draw on for any kind of uh, Aesop's fables and stuff mm -hmm. like that. You draw upon archetypes that, that, that we are familiar with. Moses would have been one of those. The real, the real person and then everything that was built around him. Mm -hmm. And he becomes then a focus. What, what is key also with Moses was because of his connection with God and the belief that, that there was a real connectedness with God that, and, and, and it comes through in so many ways that we are a chosen people. That covenant on Sinai meant something. You know, that, and that, that identity has carried through into this very day. Mm -hmm. I mean, so this is not something that was lost on folks by any stretch of the imagination. This is something that, that truly, you know, it, it, was, it made a difference, you know, into who they were, what they believed, and continue to believe even to this very day of what God ultimately has promised to give them. Um, so those things have had a powerful, powerful effect. Going back to, um, uh, going back to the, the Pentateuch here, is that Moses, again, the founder of the Israelite faith. The Pentateuch has, as I mentioned, many traditions, laws, stories, hymns, reflections added to, added to it up to the time of Ezra. Um, and then it was Ezra when he declared, in a sense, it was finished. It was a sacred, holy book. And Ezra was during the time when they were coming back from exile. Okay. So it would have been in the, you know, approximately five, it would have been in the mid early 400s, somewhere in that area. When Ezra, when they were finally allowed to come back, and he presents the book before the people, and he, it's, it's evident that, you know, uh, either they had found a new book or it had been kind of put together, but it's evident that the people were not necessarily familiar because it had to be read to all of the people. And so it's around that time of Ezra after the exile and coming back that in a sense, the book of the Pentateuch would have been kind of coalesced together as a unit and then kept as, you know, as a sacred text for, mm -hmm. for the people. When you think about it, the, the Pentateuch tells, you might say, one whole story throughout history. Uh, it's, again, it's not five books, but it tells a complete story. And I have not 
and, and one of my challenges, I think, for me as I continue to reflect on this is I got, have to read the Pentateuch, you know, from beginning to end to really make that a project of, of trying to make some of those connections with, with some of that to see, you know, to perceive differently because when you, it's, it's like reading some of the, uh, the books of the New Testament when you read the whole book. Or, for example, with Job. Job is a, is a short book. Uh, to read the whole book of Job in one sitting, which is not hard to do, <laughs> brings a whole different view of it than when you, read just bits, when you read just bits and pieces. You get a much bigger picture of it. So I, that would be one thing I'd probably want to do eventually. Um, it tells, you know, it, it, as I mentioned, there's laws, lessons, etc. Um, it was, in general, it was to be kind of the handbook of how Israel was to live in the land that they were about to possess. It really was to be the guide. This is who we are. This is who we are to be. Um, it offered a, a significant religious lessons uh, for the people, and it really also became, in many ways, their theology book. Um, in, in, in a little bit of summary with, with what we've just kind of spoken about and a couple of other things, then, is that we the Pentateuch really is, is a really a great work of art. Um, and it's, it's a vital story of God's relationship to the world, you know, with, with uh, power and with beauty and, and even the mundane of how it all works together. Now, we might ask, and you had asked before a little bit, <laughs> you might say. Uh, so I might ask. So you might ask. Um, <laughs> that, you know, really, it's only been, you know, relatively in the near past that we really have come to some awarenesses. And part of this is the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the mid-40s, 1940s. Part of it is just better scholarship as we learn more and more. Um, but it's it's interesting how it's just really in the late uh, 1800s that uh, that really they've come to understand and and come to grow in an awareness of of the different you might say uh, not authors as much as people who collected the material and that's where we get the you know the Yahwist the Eloist the priestly and the Deuteronomic. Those are four titles that describe groups of people that put the Pentateuch together in, or collected, I might say, the stories. And each of them had a particular way of looking at the world. They all had political views. They all had you know, ways of, of, of how they believed that the world was formed, needed to be, and, and what these books were telling, you know, people. So again, you have the Yahwist, the Eloist, the Priestly, and the Deuteronomic. I just want to touch upon each of those groups. The Yahwist, <clears throat> or the J-source, they call it the J-source, mm. um, it has the, the earliest and the most comprehensive of, of, of what the Pentateuch is, and, and because it, it, it just runs through, you might say, the entire theme. It seems to be that they would be that major thread that other things were added onto, similar to the synoptics, you know, when they talk about the Q source and, and different sources of those books, of how these books really um, uh, were brought together. The Yahwist, um, it was written in Judah, uh, probably in Jerusalem, uh, under Solomon, 
or, or one of his successors. Um, it, what, it, what its point was is that uh, it wanted to show that the promises to Abraham were, were fulfilled in the empire of David. That everything that started with Abraham was ultimately then fulfilled with the empire of David. That was their point. Um, it's very earthy, um, <laughs> but th that was the culture again. It was very earthy, very frank, and it's about, and it's it also is interesting how it speaks of the God's closeness to the people and how God chooses the people. That, that in many ways there's a very intimate bond between God and the people. You have the Eloist. Um, th this group was really writing later on after Solomon, really Solomon's kingdom fell apart. Uh, there was a need, you might say, for an official account of the tradition. And it often reflects uh, in an anti-Jerusalem view. Again, politically, and you know, there were some points to be made here. Uh, Jerusalem had, you know, had really moved away from God, had, had lost the sense of covenant. Um, so it was written after the 900 BCs, and it refers, one, the reason that it's called the Eloist is because it uses the name Elohim for God. Sometimes they're very practical in how they, they identify. Um, also, uh, and it, it emphasizes, you know, the role of Jacob and the northern places, again, anti-Jerusalem, so it emphasizes the northern places such as Bethel and Shechem. You have the Deuteronomist. Uh, they were written in the eighth and seventh century, eighth and seventh centuries. So now you're going, right. you're going, you know, you got to go opposite direction. Yeah, yeah. So you're going another two hundred years, you might say. Um, you have a, it's a, what the Deuteronomists do is they really do a reassessment of the of the J and the E traditions. Again, you have these groups who are writing and they're pulling together all sorts of sor sources and sometimes validating the source before it, sometimes questioning it, <laughs> but somehow trying to put it all get together in a cohesive, uh, cohesive unit. The, uh, it agrees with the Eloist in its stress that the covenant with Moses is more important than kingship. You know, but, but think about it. Solomon and the following kings were not exactly nice people. So, so we don't really have to worry about that. Exactly. We're worry about covenant. You know, it was much more covenant, Moses, that that's what was most important. The kings, they were going to have to answer to God for all of the evil that they had done. Um, that uh, it agrees also with the Yahweh on Jerusalem as the center for worship, but only after the fall of the north in the 722 BC. Again, you're 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 always working with the north and south kingdoms, so they uh, they agree that you know Jerusalem is the center, but only because the north was no longer in existence, <laughs> pretty much so. The priestly source um, of the material it really stresses, uh, you might say, cult and law. So what you'll find in the priestly source material is an emphasis on rituals. On, on sacrifices, on on the actual law. Uh, they're much more the, the legalists, you might say, as far as that goes. The priestly source dated, they were collecting material and probably working with Deuter the Deuteronomist because it was written around the same time. 
remember that even though the kingdom was not the greatest, it was still a time of stability and people were still able to sit peacefully and write things down. They had the money to do that and they were able then to pass this on, you know, in time, uh, in, in, in the, as time went on. So does Deuteronomy have anything to do with the Deuteronomists or is that just a coincidence? That's more coincidence. That's really a coincidence. It has more to do with, with not so much more to do with an approach as opposed to actual people or anything like that. It's uh, their their focus was on the law that is found in Deuteronomy of what it meant to be the people now entering the promised land. Um, when you think of, of Genesis and Exodus, all was pretty much ends at the time where they're about to enter into the land of Cana, is that uh, the Deuteronomic uh, tradition really then centers on you know what does it mean to be among these people and how do basically we live among them until such time as we be take control <laughs> type of thing um, the um, it is most probable from what we know that the priestly editors arranged all of the four sources into their present form that it would have been these this group that would have taken you know the Yahwis, Elois, Deuteronomic material and saying we need to make it into a whole. And so that's kind of you know where they think about this is that it's recognizing there are threads we've woven through all of this, is that they would have though tried to make sense out of it all. The J and E uh, traditions. Uh, really, you know, kind of went along side by side, you might say, uh, because, you know, they they really represented in many ways the, the different kingdoms, is that as long as the two kingdoms lasted, you know, and there were two kingdoms basically from 930, which was after it split apart again, after uh, Solomon died, and the kingdoms eventually split again, and to literally for almost 200 years, where there were two kingdoms, um, which unfortunately they were not able to stay together because there was no one like David to do so, and so. But once the uh, once the kingdoms fell, and and basically because of the Babylonians, Assyrians, and such, then these uh, these stories were basically put together into one you know common unit. Um, editors, you know, the editors and the teachers of the priestly circles. We, we suspect finally put it all into one final shape. Um, and it was probably, it was this work that was put together by the priestly uh, folks that Ezra, the scribe, would have announced uh, when he accepts the book of the law. And this was about 458 BC. So again, when you think about this, hundreds of years after that 458 BC, though, the Pentateuch would have had its pretty much its shape and form. Hmm. So it, it's, you know, when you look at all of this with the history of the Pentateuch and such, and there's, there's so much you, could, you can do. I mean, you could literally spend, and people have spent a lifetime, is that, you know, these, these books are put together in such a way that, in very intricately, that only it's, it's literally taken thousands of years to grow in understanding. And that's why sometimes you wish some of these original manuscripts were around. 
Some would have simply deteriorated at time. Some are probably lost in caves. Some, uh, you know, some was probably sitting on somebody's shelf someplace and they have no idea what it is because they can't read the language. The thing is, is that there's so much more to it than just five separate books. It's really an entity that, you know, and I think it's a significant statement that says it literally is the standard by which all other revel uh, revelation that we perceive and, and, and accept and such, both in the Jewish traditions and in the Christian traditions, it's the standard that helps us to understand what revelation is in the first place. And, and so it continues to make uh, have an influence today, um, whether in the Jewish world or the Christian. Do, is the Jewish Torahs just the first five books, but do they, do they go beyond that? Oh yeah, they do. There are three major categories that um, uh, that that the Jewish tradition uses, and they certainly have the law. Okay, um, they also have um, in the Jewish tradition, and then they have what is called the prophets. So you have Joshua, Judges, Samuel, First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings, and then they, that's the former prophets. Then they call the latter prophets, which are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Book of the Twelve. So you have, uh, so you have the Law, the Book of the Prophets, and then what they call the Writings. Um, these are Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ruth, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles. So they do have. You know, they do use these other books. Uh, and so that's why, you know, so they would have an understanding of all of that. Um, but the Pentateuch certainly has the place of primacy in all of that. Uh, we, the, the, the Catholic Bible also includes other books into that canon, uh, which are both lacking in the Jewish and Protestant Bibles. And those are often called deuterocanonical. And because they were not... Uh, written in Greek, uh, they were written, oh, they, I'm sorry, they were written in Greek and they were not written in Hebrew. And those books that we include would be Tobit, Judith, The Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, and First and Second Maccabees. We include those books as being inspired and part of the Catholic canon. Hmm. The Protestant Bible and Jewish uh, folks do not include those books you know there's been battles over that over time it's just that's kind of where it has settled out okay anything else on the pentateuch for us no i think that covers pretty much the basics <laughs> i mean, just you know like i said there's a lot that one could go in but uh, that just covers the basics to give people an idea of when they look at that saying they're looking at something that sometimes the picture beyond the picture mm-hmm you know, I think of sometimes those pieces of art where you look at something, oh, but then you stare at it for a while and say, but there's a whole other picture behind the picture. And in some ways, I think about that as the Pentateuch. True enough. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed that. And we will see you next time.